0: is WNZK, Dearborn Heights, Detroit, your ethnic superstation at 690 days, 680 nights.
1: U.S. Arab Radio Network presents Season 3 of the Ray Hanania Radio Show, sponsored by Arab News, the leading English-language newspaper in the Middle East. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist Ray Hanania explores issues facing Arab Americans on WNZK AM 690 radio in Detroit and on WDMV AM 700 radio in Washington D.C. And now your host Ray Hanania. Watch the show live on Arab News Facebook page. <laughs>
2: Greetings to our listeners and followers. Today we have a very special episode of the Ray Hanania Radio Show airing live in Detroit and Washington, D.C. on the U.S. Arab Radio Network, sponsored by Arab News and available on Arab News Facebook and downloadable at Arab News Podcast. Today we have a very special episode of the show featuring a very distinguished panel discussing the U.S.-Saudi relationship in the face of some very interesting recent developments. As we all know, the relationship was at an all-time high during the Trump era, but faced a bumpy ride in the past two and a half years with the Biden administration. Starting off on a tough note, President Biden, while still campaigning, vowed to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. This was followed by very alarming actions to the Saudis towards a country which, despite differences in opinion, has always been an ally and friend of the U.S. The Biden administration removed the Houthis from the terrorist list, and then withdrew defensive Patriot missile batteries from the kingdom while its civilians were under attack two years ago. All this changed after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As prices of oil shot up, we saw Biden suddenly visit the kingdom last summer, and the administration has been showing some reconciliation steps ever since, most recently with Secretary Blinken's visit to the kingdom. With me to discuss this topic are three highly respected experts on the matter. Brian Katulis, a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute and editor-at-large of the Liberal Patriot at liberalpatriot.com, Salman El-Ansari, a Saudi businessman, writer, and political commentator who specializes in strategic and political communications, and Rob Subhani writer, author, and adjunct professor at Georgetown University, specializing in U.S. policy in the Middle East, and CEO, chairman, and founder of Caspian Group Holdings, LLC. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining the program today. Great to be with
1: you. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Let me turn to Rob Sopani first, and we'll go through uh, each of you with some questions. But uh, first, uh, four days ago, you wrote Rob uh, this column, a daring column in the Washington Times that made headlines nationwide. You argued that America needs allies to navigate today's challenges, and that if we have, and that we have no better friend than Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Why do you believe this is the case,
3: uh, Ray? Thank you very much for having me, uh, and hello to your uh, viewers and uh, listeners. Um, I wrote the piece because I think it's important to understand what makes Crown Prince Mohammed Salman tick. And it's important because in a turbulent world where we're moving to a new paradigm of a multipolar world as opposed to the bipolar world of the Cold War, the United States more than ever needs allies. But it needs allies that are independent thinkers, allies that love their own country, but also understand the value that a U.S. relationship brings. And I really, really firmly believe that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman can be a very, very strong partner of the United States, especially, especially on global challenges which the Crown Prince himself is now championing, such as climate, such as the supply chain issue, such as global pandemic. So I do believe that President Biden and his foreign policy team need to really rethink the way in which they look at Saudi Arabia in general, and in particular, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman.
2: And, and Rob, I know in the uh, it's almost unheard of in the past few years to read a professional pro-Saudi argument in the U.S. and in the U.S. media. Is It seems like our, our media, at least here in this country, and I've been a journalist 45 years, sometimes very polarized. And I'm not saying Saudi Arabia or any other country should or should be criticized, but I think we can both agree that the kingdom on many occasions gets unfair coverage. My question is, Was there a resistance or much convincing needed to get uh, the Washington Times to run your column?
3: Uh, Not at all. The Washington Times has been a very fair uh, and uh, balanced paper as it concerns Saudi Arabia. When the time comes, they'll be critical. They'll post critical op-eds. But overall, they have been extremely, extremely balanced in their uh, writings and in their uh, narratives about Saudi Arabia. Maybe later, Ray, I can provide some historic context as to why I personally preferred to put this piece in the Washington Times, because history suggests that 45, 46, 47 years ago, when the liberal media in this country Use the term saint for Ayatollah Khomeini, and now we see the results, it is indeed important that good media, balanced media like the Times, be applauded.
2: And what kind of pushback or response did you get from readers, and were you ever accused of siding against American interests by anybody?
3: No, not not at all, Ray. Um, I'm an American. I was born in the United States. Um, I love my country and I feel very strongly that Saudi Arabia is an ally. Uh, And I truly, truly believe that if President Biden and the next American president truly and genuinely embraces Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, we will have no better a friend to solve some of the intractable global conflicts that we see, whether it's Sudan, whether it's the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, or or any issue that the world faces, uh, food security to take one example. Okay.
2: Now, let me turn to Salman al-Ansari. In his article, uh, Rob Savani talks about the fact that the U.S. needs allies to confront today's challenges and that it has no better Friend and the crown prince, MBS. Of course, Riyadh has repeatedly said the relationship with America is ironclad. But how do you answer critics who say yes, but you have a close relationship with China and Russia at the same time? How does Riyadh balance these ties, and, there, and can they be used in America's favor?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and hi to your honorable guests and all to the listeners. So yeah, I think uh, uh, Dr. Rob actually explained it very well at the article. I really enjoyed it. And it actually uh, summarizes the actual Saudi Arabia, the current Saudi Arabia, despite what the negative uh, coverage Saudi Arabia has been having, which was absolutely unfair. Anyhow, so with regard to the Saudi-U.S. relationship, I think the relationship is historic and multidimensional, uh, mutually beneficial. And as I said it in another interview, that both countries Saudi Arabia and the, and, and, and the US fought communism together, they fought terrorism together, and they stabilized the uh, global uh, economy together. So, and I I actually want to just mention, these are like the ideal kind of uh, statements, but right now let's get to the realism, to, the, to get to the real uh, uh, things. I would love to use the analogy of umbrella. Uh, we, know that the U.S. is the major security partner of Saudi Arabia and most of the GCC nations, not all. Uh, so there's supposed to be an American security umbrella in the Middle East. And uh, that umbrella was put into test in the 1990 when Saddam invaded, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. And I was actually around six years old by then. And I still remember the sound of the bombings and missiles Iraq threw at Riyadh which hit a nearby neighborhood where my family and I uh, used to live. Anyhow, the security umbrella passed the test successfully. And it's true Saudi Arabia had the biggest burden and did the heavy lifting financially and resources wise, but the umbrella worked greatly. 20 years later, the US unfortunately invaded Iraq in 2003, despite the strong Saudi rejection of the idea. And the result was absolutely catastrophic. And we are still having its uh, consequences, uh, such as the rise of ISIS and the Iranian militias, et cetera. And the US, instead of becoming a security guarantor of the Middle East, they basically caused caused the major security issue. And around a decade later, um, former US President Barack Obama, he supported the so-called democratization process of the Middle East through what? Through Islamist and mainly the Muslim Brotherhood. That was very unfortunate. And we know that through 2010, you know, the PSD 11 document can explain all of that. So the actual fabric, that's what I want to say with the analogy of the umbrella, the actual fabric of the American security umbrella was somehow torn apart and the stick of the umbrella remained. So that's the kind of issue and challenge we face. And President Obama definitely later worked on, um, like worked and had some kind of agendas against the Saudi interest by his full appeasement policy with Iran for for the sake of the nuclear deal and gave them 150 billion dollars and, and 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 all the kind of uh, economic benefits that came with it which Tehran used exclusively to intensify their their hostile activities and support their 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 militias in Iraq Syria uh, Yemen and, and 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 Lebanon so so Definitely. And we, if we speak about the current time, right now we are seeing President Biden who who didn't will assess the importance of Saudi Arabia for the United States and, okay. called, it a par- and called it a pariah. So the actual challenge with regards to your question is not going to be solved overnight because right now we are having this uh, multipolarity as you have mentioned it. So time is the one and only that can actually normalize the new realities on the ground, because the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is now very interested to build uh, its strategic relations in such a manner that does not affect other nations negatively. And the idea of the U.S. wanting wanting to dictate other nations how they should uh, and how how they should conduct their policies with regards to the U.S. uh, um, uh, uh, competitors, I think that's not going to be uh, beneficial. Like China is the biggest trading partner of Saudi Arabia and 113 other nations as well, including the U.S. itself. So it's a reality. And the kingdom re its strategic worldview accordingly. And we should not deny the fact that unipolar, unipolar, unipolarity is, is somehow over. And I believe it to be a good thing because multipolarity means more voices, more perspectives, and more progress. And the world needs balance. And, and multipolarity brings equilibrium. And the United States, let's... I, I just don't want to be mistaken. The United States will always remain Saudi Arabia's biggest uh, strategic and security partner.
2: All right. One uh, couple more questions, then we'll go to Brian Kutoulos. But uh, uh, for you, uh, Salman, one area of contention, obviously, is Syria's readmission to the Arab League, uh, the re- reception of Bashar al-Assad in Jeddah recently, uh, the U.S. has a military presence in Syria, along with Turkey, Russia, and Iran. So I, I, you can see, I guess, why some might be worried in Washington, and even some here in America believe that if, even if you put po- politics aside, there's a deeply rooted hatred for American culture and values in, among some of those. Any truth to all this at all, and how do you view that uh, Syrian injection?
0: Yeah, with regards to Syria, I think the case has not been... Uh, understood widely, like in the global narrative basically. What's happened is, has been explained by the uh, Foreign Affairs Minister of Arabia, Prince Faisal bin. He said it's gonna be a step for a step, which means what? Yes, we admitted Syria to become back to the fold, to the Arab fold, etc. but that doesn't mean that they will be having some kind of economic benefits out of it, not, it doesn't mean that we're gonna do the rebuilding, etc. efforts. And it means only to pave the way to have the actual requirements of the 2254, which is the United Nations Accord, to be applied. It's not gonna be applied overnight. It takes time and it, might, it may actually take a long time, but the stalemate was not helpful. That's the view of Saudi Arabia. So, and if we go back to the Congress bill with regards to Syria and the, uh, the Caesar uh, bill, which, uh, which is about the sanctions, et cetera, it mentioned three major points, which is what? To uplift the sanctions on Syria, there needs to be a political reform based on 2254. Saudi Arabia wants that. Second, to have the sanctions to be lifted, you need to send or kick out the militias, the Iranian and the foreign militias out of Syria, and Saudi Arabia wants that. The third is to have an amnesty and also to have uh, uh, the opposition and the refugees to be back to Syria, and Saudi Arabia wants that. So I don't think the Saudis and the U.S. are having are, are not being on the same page. They are actually on the exact same page. They have the same objective, but Saudi Arabia wants to achieve that objective through admitting or readmitting uh, Syria to the Arab fold. Will that work? We will see, because Saudi Arabia actually added another point that is not mentioned in the, in the Congress bill, which is the crackdown on Uh, drugs cartels, because as we know, it's very unfortunate that Syria has become mostly like uh, the biggest uh, um, drug cartel in the world. And it has been uh, wreaking havoc when it comes to their, uh, their 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 drugs uh, smuggling and exporting to 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 the to the region to the GCC and to the whole Arab world. So it's very alarming. So for us to engage with Syria to address all these issues is very beneficial and should be seen with positive light rather than just uh, negatively. But I'm not very optimistic that things will move the way the international community and Saudi Arabia want it to be. But right. it will take. A long time for
2: sure. And one, one final question in this segment for you: um, Are the shortcomings all from America's side? Where do you think Saudi Arabia went wrong in lobbying or explaining its point of view in the United States?
0: I don't actually know exactly uh, what was the shortcoming of this, but maybe one of the reasons that it raised some concerns among the Americans is the fact that it came after the reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran through China, because that was a shock for sure, for a lot of, for the American political fabric because of the timing, because of the uh, mediator uh, uh, itself, which is China. So they kind of felt like abandoned maybe that their uh, strategic view of the region is not going to be the one that's going to be applied. Yes, it could be, but I think. One of the issues we have with regards to the global narrative, which is the international media, etc., uh, there is, we can put some blame on us, Saudi Arabia, with regards to not being able to tell our story right to the, to the world. Like we are actually, unfortunately, we are the only G20 nation that doesn't have an English-based uh, channel, like an, an actual channel. Uh, so, so so, a TV channel is very important. We should have a lot of uh, English-based uh, networks when it comes to media to tell our stories. And I'm actually optimistic about the current uh, uh, minister of uh, media in Saudi Arabia who has uh, been in the field of media for so long. And he's a writer and thinker who can actually advance the Saudi uh, uh, reach to the whole world. So maybe the issue of us not being understood is a two-way Stream like from the other side, we have seen how there is this actually Saudi phobia, unfortunately, and how whatever we do, we are always damn if we do, damn if we don't. That's one to blame the US and the Western media uh, uh, for, and the other uh, blame is on us not being uh, vocal and not having institutions that can actually tell our uh, exact stories.
2: All right, and thank you. Let me, and of course, Arab News is working really hard to bring that English language uh, message out there to the West. Amazing, yeah, and it's so, doing amazing. Let Let me turn to our guest Brian Katsulas, and and I again, I appreciate all of you being on here. And uh, Brian, let let me bring you into the conversation here. Uh, what did you think of what Salman said that Saudi Arabia is on our side? Why do you think this message is not coming through like to our politicians? What are they not hearing it? Uh, does Saudi Arabia need to do a better job of lobbying or do our politicians need to update their perceptions and what the reality is from the Saudi perspective?
1: I think it's in part for some of the factors that both of the other guests highlighted is that it's a it's a much more complicated world. It's not a world of black and whites. So when uh, I think uh, Republicans or Democrats on the Hill see the image of uh, the Chinese leadership in Riyadh uh, at a time, when uh, the US has highlighted the concerns uh, that it has with China. It's just a much different world. Similarly, when um, there are visits or perceptions about how Saudi Arabia is positioning itself uh, on the Ukraine war, some of it is just a misperception, but it's just much more complicated. And as one um, top Saudi official uh, recently said to me when I was on a visit to the kingdom, 2023 is not 1991. And what this person meant was 1991, America had won the Cold War. We had no rival. China was barely a a blip on the radar screen. We won a quick war in the Middle East with a big coalition. It wasn't a costly war. Flash forward to 2023, America uh, was in competition with China and in Russia and Ukraine. The Middle East, um, 20 plus years of engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan had really drained a lot of our will and resources and our focus. And uh, other countries, essentially, including Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, became more assertive. So it is what it is. And I've often said that the U.S.-Saudi relationship is kind of like a marriage, a marriage that's in deep need of therapy. And even when analysts from think tanks and uh, especially when things get very politicized in, in our Congress. And again, it's, a, it's not just a democratic thing. It's a Republican Party problem things have become very emotional in our politics. So I think the, the 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 reason why many people don't see things in the same sort of way is in part because both countries are changing and we need to have a new Vision 2030 uh, for the U.S.-Saudi bilateral relationship that matches uh, the, the different visions uh, that are out there, including the one that Saudi Arabia has for itself. That, that means people need to just check their emotions and in my view here in America, their partisanship at the door and think more strategically and long term. Easier said than done in our political system, but it's something I'm, I'm committed to doing.
2: Now, obviously you're a Democrat uh, and in your article recently, you wrote in favor of deepening Saudi-US relations, I think as you touched on, and the article is titled, um, Why America Needs More of a Swing State Focused in Foreign Policy. What yeah. can you tell us about that? And do you agree that the perception that Saudis get along better with the Republicans is true? Do they actually get along better with Republicans and Democrats? So those two things, let us uh, tell me what you think.
1: I actually think um, the uh, first on that article, which was at the liberal dot com, I wrote it after a visit to the kingdom in March. And it struck me, this new geopolitics, the Salman and we're all talking about here, um, it, it requires any U.S. administration actually to try to uh, look at states like Saudi Arabia, which is a G20 country, has, is certainly punching uh, on, in many different fields well above its weight, and it's important in and of itself, is that we're never going to get to full alignment in this new geopolitics, but we should actually double down in our attempts to get there. And in my view, uh, after several stumbles by Obama Trump, and I'm happy to talk about how I think Trump stumbled as well with that relationship, and then especially the Biden administration, I think we're on a much more solid foundation uh, to to move forward in in that sort of way. Um, And and the the challenge, I think, and um, I think under the the Trump administration, it clearly uh, became a partisan wedge issue. Uh, Many more Republicans sort of not questioning or, or raising questions. There were a handful like Lindsey Graham and others who after uh, certain incidents in Saudi Arabia and the Yemen war and other things, uh, they raised red flags. But the bigger challenge, I think, and Saudi Arabia is changing. It's this under this amazing economic and social transformation. They haven't yet communicated that to the American public uh, in a clear way. I think they're getting there. Um, but the, the key thing is if you look at both the Biden administration's national security strategy document, and then Trump administration's national security uh, strategy document, there's a lot of similarities actually between the two in identifying this global comp- competitive landscape. And it, it, I think if countries like Saudi Arabia uh, did a better job in articulating how they actually will help America advance its interests, and and even and to some extent on, on certain issues like social issues, the values, they're going to be much more persuasive with politicians on both sides of the aisle um, uh, in Capitol Hill. And ultimately, I mean, the last thing I'd say, Ray, is that there's a bigger dynamic where 2023 is also not like uh, 2005 or 2013, in that a lot of these national security questions, and especially Middle East policy questions, quite frankly, are not on the radar screen of American politics the way they used to be. That's an advantage, but it's also a disadvantage. I'm happy to talk about more deeply if you're interested in that.
2: And uh, one last question in this segment for you, Brian: Is the U.S.-Saudi issue uh, is this a U.S.-Saudi issue, the issues that we're seeing, um, or is it broader? Is the U.S. middle is it a U.S. Middle East issue? In other words, I think you wrote about the strategic engagement in the Middle East. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, so a couple years ago uh, when I was finishing up my previous job at the Center for American Progress, the center-left think tank, my last uh, big piece on the Middle East was called strategic Reengagement." The core argument I said is that America, rather than restrain itself or pull back from the region, actually needs to double down on its engagement in the region. And by that I mean not just military uh, um, uh, maneuvers and helping others protect themselves from threats, but also seizing opportunities, economic opportunities, social change opportunities, and it would be better for the U.S. to do this. Um, And to a certain extent, you know, uh, uh, Trump kinda sorta did it on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but on Tuesdays and Thursdays, he's pulling out of Syria, saying that he thinks Islam hates us and making fun of the Saudi king, um, and saying that the Saudi uh, uh, state would not exist without uh, uh, the United States in two weeks. So he was pretty erratic. America's been pretty erratic overall, I think. But I think what you've seen in the last year, year and a half, especially since the uh, fist bump between uh, Biden and, and MBS, uh, despite certain hiccups, there's been more of a deeper engagement. The U.S. Senate ambassador finally uh, to Riyadh. So, so, but to your bigger question, the, the challenge is not just the U.S.-Saudi relationship, it's how the Middle East is viewed overall. When I go to Democratic uh, foreign policy meetings and dinners, sort of the last thing people want to talk about, and it's not because of Saudi Arabia or Israel or anything else, it's just that people don't see what value the Middle East uh, provides. They essentially see it as a uh, region that causes lots of problems, drained our resources. And actually, I think there's an argument to be made for what I've called a silver linings playbook, that there are win-wins for America and for the region if we deepen our engagement. But the last thing I'd say, is that in America's debate, there's this, what I've written about in The Liberal Patriot as a neo-Orientalism. If you remember Orientalism of Edward Said and from the previous eras of British colonialism, there's a neo-Orientalism, especially on the left in America, but also on the right, that actually doesn't treat countries like Saudi Arabia and especially their people as people. They, they treat them as blank screens upon which we project our own social and political divides. And it just gets, you know, it's just sort of a waste of time. Um, It's a lot of emotion and it doesn't actually get to results or forward-looking proposals about what we do uh, about the future.
2: Rob, what do you think of all this? Brian says America needs more positive engagement with the Middle East. How could we possibly do that if we're not taking the most powerful country there seriously? I mean, Saudi Arabia is the custodian of the two uh, holy mosques of Islam, the world's biggest player in oil and the political powerhouse.
3: Uh, Ray, I just want to actually applaud what Brian said and just maybe add to it, okay? Sure. Bring it back to what Salman said, which is the dynamic new renaissance that we're seeing in Saudi Arabia. I guarantee you that if the United States and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman got together in a room and decided, you know what, we're gonna capture two thirds of all the carbon that's out there by planting a trillion trees, the world would be behind it. That's the opportunity that we're missing that Brian alluded to. A lot of talk, but not much action. And Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his team, by the way, you know, he's the quarterback, but he's got a good line. He's got good running backs and they are willing to step up to the plate and solve some of these global issues, such as climate change. The Green Initiative in Saudi calls for planting trees. There's no better way to fight climate change than planting trees. I think we can agree on that, okay? There are companies here in the United States that are now producing the world's most green batteries. I visited King Abdullah University in Science and Technology, and their Saudi scientists would love nothing more than to partner and give the world the best batteries that are green, recyclable. So let's focus on the positive. Let's choose, for example, for example, AI. The economic minister of Saudi Arabia, Faisal al-Ibrahim has termed AI as the fourth industrial revolution, rightly so. But let's work with Mohammed bin Salman on giving the world responsible AI ethical AI, an AI that is low carbon footprint that actually solves some of the healthcare problems that we face as a world. I guarantee you, and I'll let everyone else chime in, that if we go to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and argue, let's build the world's best cancer cluster so that we can solve the problem of cancer He will step up to the plate. Because guess what? Cancer doesn't understand Saudi-American. Cancer does not understand Republican-Democrat. Cancer does not understand Salafi or Wahhabi. Cancer kills. And if we partner with Saudi and Mohammed bin Salman, that's positive for the world.
2: And uh, and the political side, though, as we see, is kind of, uh, it's been disruptive. How do you think this relationship can be permanently fixed? between the two sides. I mean, like so many things in America, politics have become very divisive in this country. And in the meantime, our allies have to suffer and they watch from the sidelines as we in the U.S. fight with ourselves. Why can't there be solid ground and permanent understanding that there are interests we can't ignore, regardless of which side of the house wins?
3: Uh, Ray, there's a very interesting term in Arabic. Uh, Salman will understand it, and for those who speak Arabic, and, and this is something that is a problem for the world, Qatl uh, al-Rajal. Um, the world doesn't have statesmen anymore. That's the problem. The world does not have statesmen. We have politicians who cater to the next Twitter feed, the next Instagram, the next Facebook uh, alert, and that's unfortunate. Because, as I said, we do have the opportunity, going back to Salman's point and Brian's point, to partner with a young, dynamic leader. For example, in the case of Mohammed bin Salman, and there's others around the world. So let's just focus on solving the issue of cancer, let's say, or climate change. I think if we choose one or two issues, US and Riyadh, uh, Washington and Riyadh, focus on this. Believe me, there will be dividends, both locally in Saudi, here in the U.S., and around the world.
2: Now, from your recent column, too, you were very positive about Saudi Arabia's crown prince. Now, I know you're a regular visitor to the kingdom, but many Americans, unfortunately, are not as positive. So if you can give us a candid view of the changes and reforms that have happened over the past few years, what would you say to them?
3: Um. Ray, I look at things in historic perspective, and I wrote the piece uh, from a historic perspective. I look at, you know, decades ago, Ataturk in Turkey, trying to take a country and move it forward. Uh, Reza Shah in Iran, trying to take a country and move it forward. The former leader of Singapore, turning an island nation into one of the most prosperous. So I wrote the piece with that historic perspective in mind that yes, along the road, there may have been bumps for Mohammed bin Salman, but there's no doubt that he is on the right trajectory to be a leader for his country. And I'd like to emphasize that. You know, his interest, rightly so, is his people, his country. The United States can be a partner with him on that journey, but because Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman also thinks globally we have a massive opportunity to partner with him on solving some of these global issues that impact all of us locally and around the world.
2: All right, thank you. Let me turn now to Salman El Ansari again. Uh, you heard what Rob had to say about the reforms in Saudi Arabia as a Saudi. Are you proud of that? I have to say that when I read things about KSA becoming the fastest growing G20 economy and the second uh, happiest nation in the world, in many ways, you're doing better than the way it's perceived in America.
0: Yeah, it's actually uh, very fascinating. And I absolutely agree with uh, Rob on that. And uh, I remember one of the GCC diplomats, I forgot his name. He said the reforms that happened in Saudi Arabia for the last 50 years equal. The, sorry, the reforms that happened in Saudi Arabia for the last five years equal the reforms that Saudi Arabia has done for the last 50 years. So that in itself is something that we have witnessed as Saudis and also the international visitors, etc. And I, I genuinely wonder uh, how some of the corporate media is casting stones uh, uh, on, towards Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi community, etc. Et even though in the United States, Edelman institution has ranked Saudi Arabia as the country with the highest confidence in its government in the world. Like the people have the highest confidence in their government in 2020 Edelman institution and the World Bank, the World Bank in the same year, 2020, they have a report called Women, Business and Law, and they have put Saudi Arabia on the top of the list. As the biggest reformer when it comes to the business and laws that are related to women, Saudi Arabia has introduced 65, 65 new laws in favor of women. And what do you, you don't hear that in the Western media or like the biased ones for sure. And that's one of the reasons that we are not having this kind of uh, good coverage. Um, and and the thing is, and I also actually remember the Saudi ambassador to the EU, uh, Haifa Al Judea, she has said that. Saudi Arabia has removed all barriers for women to enter uh, the labor labor market. And, And Saudi Arabia introduced laws for equal pay in 2019, which many of the EU states and the US don't have. So these things are amazing these things have never been anticipated just six, seven, eight years ago. And right now we are having this kind of, I would call it Saudi Renaissance, uh, that uh, needs to be seen uh, uh, with, with with admiration rather than just being uh, critical for no reason. And uh, one of the things that I think uh, I would love to highlight with regards to Saudi US relations is the fact that I think like, I agree with Brian with regards to how the U.S. actually needs to re-engage with the region, et cetera. But I think there is something that the U.S. needs to do before, which is, and I call it the strategic entitlement. The strategic entitlement should be over with, because the logical fallacy of the false dichotomy, either you are with me or with another country, isn't going to be productive in this multipolar world. So the strategic Entitlement is something needs to be over with. Second is respect, respect is key. And uh, Dr. Rob actually mentioned this in his article and he actually had it in a very nuanced manner, which is the U.S. needs to respect the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, for its values, for its uh, 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 vision, for its uh, 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 direction. And the third point I want to mention is, I personally, and I said this earlier, that do not have high concern with regards to Saudi-U.S. relations. The actual concern I have is U.S.-U.S. relations, because what's going on between the two parties has not been productive for the whole uh, uh, global uh, scene. What happens in the United States doesn't stay in the United States. The United States is still the number one country when it comes to military power, cultural power, economic power, and we need the United States to be back to their natural, traditional stance that assists its relations in a good manner, rather than just turning friends into foes and turning foes into friends.
2: And I I want to ask you about the, the Western media, because honestly, the Western media hasn't been very fair. Um, and they often talk negatively about what's happening in Saudi Arabia. It's almost a given. Um, obviously I don't, I don't think you think that's fair, but, but there's so many Saudis out there that, uh, that we've had on the show and they're always incredibly interesting. There's so many, uh, talented people out there, highly educated, very convincing. How come we don't see that, you know, more in the Western media? Is it that they, Is this a problem with the Western media more than politics, do you think? Um, Why is that? Why, Why don't we see this?
0: I think it's interlinked, the issue from the political and the media machine as well. Because at the end of the day, we all know the most influential media in the U.S. is the one on the left. ABC, CNN, uh, Watch the Post, New York Times, etc., And they have been successful in becoming the most, or like the mainstream media. And they always want to echo what the White House wants them to say. And at some times they are actually challenging them by actually putting them in uh, uh, um, in a position where they are embarrassed in front of their allies, etc. Yes, that's true. But at the end of the day, I think facts are stubborn things, as Ronald Reagan said. So, and I think the Saudis have moved away from being concerned with regards to how the international media is projecting them. It's a good thing to not be heavily concerned about how your reputation is uh, going forward because at the end of the day, facts are stubborn things and people will realize that all these misled information uh, from these uh, uh, groups that have their own vested interest uh, do not have merit. So that's in itself, uh, I think, uh, and uh, and that doesn't actually deny the fact that we need to do more, as I said earlier, like Arab news and other uh, institutions, they are doing a phenomenal job with regards to telling the Saudi story to the world in a very fair manner not a biased one, and we need more of that. We need 20, 30 Arab news, and we need TV channels. We need TV channels in all languages, in French, Spanish, uh, uh, Chinese, uh, Mandarin, in Russian, in all the major languages in the world. And uh, unfortunately, we only have Arabic ones, so we are somehow speaking to ourselves. So we need to get uh, uh, away from that uh, mentality, and I think we are moving in the right direction with that regard. Uh, But with regards to the people with the vested interests i can tell you and i will re- go back to the idea of our concern of us us relations right now what we are seeing and the climate in the united states like i've been in the us just a couple of months ago trust me i'm a big fan of the us and i am i've like i did my bachelor degree in an american university in st louis university in madrid um, but A couple of months ago when I was in the U.S., I really felt that the Americans are becoming lonely. Seriously. I felt like the American community is not the community that I used to see a couple of years ago. There is this tension. The political climate, the media machine, and all these agendas that are fighting each other is making me to be really concerned about the well-being of uh, Americans and the well-being of the American society. We look up to them. we see them as the beacon of hope. but unfortunately what we are seeing right now and all the crimes the uh, the, cri- the crime rate in the United States, the the, the poverty and, and and the homelessness and it's the country with the biggest number of prison uh, of prisoners in the world, these things are actually very concerning. why? because the US is somehow on a direction, through which they are losing their status as a model. That's in itself for me as a Saudi who believes in Saudi US relations is very concerning and alarming. So I would love for the United States to rectify the trajectory of their community and and, and if they just spent 10% of their attention on the human rights records around the world, just inside the United States, I think they will be solving their problems. But the problem is that we have these lobbyists and these organizations that do not have have, uh, any any kind of uh, base when it comes to their facts, they're actually throwing stones uh, towards other countries' uh, uh, houses while their house is made of glass. So we want the United States to be back, but not in the manner that it is doing it right now because that's not gonna be productive for the United States, because I believe that the U.S. national security is an extension to global security, and that U.S. economic prosperity is an extension to global economic
2: prosperity. All right. Thank you, Salman. Brian Katsoulis, uh, you recently participated in a high-level, off-the-record debate about how to fix the Saudi-U.S. relations last March in the Saudi city of Al-Ula. And I'm told that you met with several Saudi senior officials and had candid discussions and conversations. Were any of them critical of America or did you feel they genuinely wanted a better relationship? What did you get out of those meetings?
1: It was both. I mean, they're (laughs) critical of the relationship. But as Salman said, they know deep down inside there's no better country to partner with, not only for their security, but also in the long term economically. And like I hear what Salman's saying based on his last trip, but I'm not so worried. I actually think America has an amazing resilience and an ability to correct uh, itself in terms of its own system. And it's because we have a free media. We have freedom. We have a lot of independence. It's chaotic from time to time. And yes, there are divisions. Um, But I think there was a genuine desire uh, to partner with the U.S., um, and and think about the future, right? So a lot of, even in this discussion, um, there's a bit of reference about all of the emotions and it's almost like psychological therapy of like who did what and we feel bad and oh my gosh. <laughs> and I, you know, I get it, we're all human, but, but uh, let's move forward. Like when the OPEC plus um, decision in October of last year happened and the Biden administration had their, Another, I call it recalibrate 2, 2.0. We're gonna recalibrate relations and that's it. And I, I thought, well, wait a second. My energy experts are saying price of oil is likely to go down. Gas prices are likely to go down. Um, people, I think, who are insecure interpret certain moves as a personal attack on them or their political party. And it wasn't that. So like, but what I'm saying is months later, cooler heads have prevailed. Uh, there've been several really good meetings including you know uh someone made this phrase strategic entitlement i mean if you listen to secretary of state tony blinken uh or jake sullivan or anyone who's part of this team that matters on the biden team there isn't this with us or against this mentality with the middle east or even with china that's the irony here is that this is a team at the time of the spy balloons are like well we didn't like that they did that but we still gotta work with them right because they understand there's a realism and pragmatism there, which I, I wish would be exuded more on the Middle East front, but it's getting there, right? And the, the last thing I'd say, and thanks Salman, I mean, only our friends can tell us sort of, and I consider you a friend, um, how, how they see us, and that's helpful to us. And, and these divisions really plague me quite a lot, which is why I, I co-founded this publication, The Liberal Patriot, Ray, that you talked about, liberalpatriot.com. People should sign up. We, talk, we write mostly about America but about US foreign policy as well, and do it in a way with a theme of inclusive nationalism, right, and our friends who are listening to this in Saudi Arabia probably get what that term means. It's a sense of pride and patriotism about your own country, and one that's not exclusivist, that that is open to partnerships with people from other backgrounds and to produce good uh, in the way that Ray and others were talking about. We got several human challenges, uh, cancer, climate change, other things, we can tackle them together. I, you know, uh, as one great philo- philosopher uh, once said, you got to roll with the punches to get, uh, to, what, with, uh, to, to get to what's real, right? And that's what I hope for, is we make, have conversations that are a bit more forward-looking. What does 2025, 2030 look like? And not so much to this navel-gazing, you know, finger-pointing. And th- those discussions in Alula were more towards the future, I'm proud to say, rather than to the past.
2: But surely there's got to be some grievances. I mean, when you understand and hear the grievances, grievances, you could uh, yeah. you could address them. But yeah. you know, what what were the main grievances? I mean, that because that tells us what needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah. So the the, the grievances were, I think, stri- there were some that were strategic in nature. There was a deep concern that the United States, which has this massive sanctions um, uh, machine that moved pretty quickly to sanction uh, the Russian state when it attacked Ukraine and invaded Ukraine, um, yet uh, didn't move as quickly uh, on uh, Iranian threats. And that was the perception and things weren't moving uh, quickly enough. I think there was a deep concern that things were politicized uh, uh, about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but about the Middle East overall. Um, But a lot of it, when you sort of scratch that very superficial surface and a lot of emotion and everybody, again, is human and has that, and you got to, okay, what do both countries want to get done um, on things like energy? There's The world is going to inevitably go through a global energy transition. Saudi Arabia and the United States are two major energy producers, both in oil and gas and renewables. So it's better if the two got together and thought strategically and talked about all aspects of it, including the nuclear civilian aspects of it, than just snipe at each other over time. So the grievances, Ray... I think are important to highlight because it says, it tells you where things have been or where things might be, but it doesn't point to the solutions. And like, yeah, people have to vent and get this off their chest. I think you've seen that in public and unfortunately you've seen it, let's be clear, not only from US politicians and the Biden administration and Republicans and Democrats, you have a similar sort of thing coming from Saudi officials. And my attitude is, okay, uh, roll with the punches and get to what's real sort of who cares because let's get to what's next, you know? And and part of this is building the trust and confidence and what I call relationship capital back. Um, And you can only do that, I think, over time. You can't do it in just two or three day visits. You need people constantly engaging with each other. You need the people to people, you know? And this is why, last thing I'd say, I'm pretty confident that Saudi Arabia's orientation towards the United States will uh, remain strong. A lot of it is social and cultural, right? When you look at the raves and the music concerts and things like this, I don't see much of that coming from like the East, from China, right? you got millions of people, like uh, Salman mentioned, he's one of them, educated in the West and like, oh, we might feel bad. America's not what it used to be. But when you look at what communist China looks like, uh, I, I think there's a cultural mismatch there. And that's actually a really important, profound thing that we often forget about. And even this sniping back and forth, the grievances, the airing of grievances, it's sort of our cultural thing. You know, It's kind of American and whenever you know the Israelis open up and, and the Saudis to each other, my God, that's gonna be an interesting conversation. It's already happening, right? We all know, but when it comes out into the open, it, and that's fun and that's not really part of the, the culture of other societies. So that's where I'm. I'm more confident in the long run. But if people stay more positive and, and forward looking rather than grievances in the past, you know,
2: I'm. I, I know I asked this question of uh, Salman Al Ansari uh, earlier, but uh, do you think Saudi Arabia can ever have a good relationship with Russia and China and with the United States at the same time? Is that possible given today's world?
1: Yeah. And they yeah. Of that. course. Uh, but it's going to take, uh, this is the thing that's not happening right now, which, look, I understand my connection to the Middle East, and I do speak Arabic <laughs> quite well because I lived and worked, uh, studied in Egypt, studied in Jordan, I studied in Palestine, I go to the region quite a lot. It's going to take a generational investment in, um, and, and some forethought. So, again, people call it soft power, it makes it seem like it's weak. It's really profoundly important to have those con- connections start at a pretty young age and having that interaction. And the thing that I, I, I see that's sort of missing is you don't see as many Americans uh, going uh, to the Middle East and especially Egypt these days, but I don't hear as many going to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. Yes, in Qatar, uh, uh, now uh, a Saudi friend. There's a couple of US universities there. There's a lot of Americans who go there. Yes, in the UAE, yes, in Jordan. So you need those investments to not only, I mentioned a 2030, Plan, but you need to think about 2040. And the only way to really bind these societies together is to is to have the confidence uh, to, to let people into your country both ways and to interact with them and, and just become human uh, with each other, which is, you know, it's, that's where the magic really happens.
2: Yeah. And Brian, I think you argued uh, in favor of a vision 2030 for the Saudi U.S. relationship. What, what would that look like, do you think?
1: I look, look, I would, I would look like this is the U S and again, I would take the Biden national security strategy document released last year. I would take the Trump one. I would combine the two. Um, though my friends from the Trump and Biden administration would get mad at me and say, when I say there's a lot of similarities, but there are, um, and and, and the, and the America has changed and it's quite different from what we heard from Obama or Bush or Clinton. Um, I would take that. I would take what is the self-professed, uh, Saudi vision for its own uh, social and economic uh, transformation—it's been out there for a while—and I would combine the two. And look, I've talked to very senior U.S. and Saudi officials about the need to do this, right? And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, it's good. It's a good idea. But but we got to like solve the next uh, crisis because somebody tweeted something about us, and <laughs> and and now you know it sets off this firestorm. And I'm laughing because it's quite silly. These are two very powerful countries with leaders that actually uh, I think are quite good uh, and, and are, are, you know, you can be critical of different presidents and whatever. But it's not like the countries are going backwards, right? Neither Saudi Arabia or the United States are like, let's go back a thousand years like ISIS wanted to, right? Or let's go back a hundred years like Vladimir Putin want, wants us to. So I would sit, I would, you have to have a long term discussion between the two sides, a strategic dialogue. And it's got to be a conversation. And it can't be this entitlement mentality, strategic entitlement, not coming from the United States, nor I would add Salman, not coming from the Saudis as well. It's got to be sort of no holds barred, but with like, we're equal partners and let's talk about it. Um, And then you would chart it out in each of the different sectors, right? And the difference is that the, sorry, the U.S. private sector is much more free and has less constraints, I think, than the system that the political economy of Saudi Arabia currently has. But you could still chart sort of common visions on different sectors.
2: On that final question, if uh, and we only got a couple minutes left, but uh, what would be the one piece of advice you would give on repairing or fixing the relationship in a way that it serves both countries, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? Rob, you first.
3: Um, Ray, I would focus on what is the most important global challenge that we as human beings face. Um, let's select, let's say, a pandemic issue. And let's have Saudi and American scientists, engineers, venture capitalists, focus on creating the next Pfizer, creating the next Moderna, so that when, God forbid, the next pandemic happens, we don't lose a million people or two million people across the world. Um, I think that's one of the most important things in which we can build on the history of U.S.-Saudi relations is to look out into the future. I point out again, if we can capture two-thirds of the carbon that's out there by planting trees, that is a massive area of collaboration between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And it creates jobs, it captures carbon, it is a health benefit for people across the world. And so my personal recommendation, if I were the president of the United States, I would call up Mohammed bin Salman, invite him to the White House, say my friend, my partner, not a fist bump, but a shaking of the hand, not a fist bump but a shaking of the hand and say, my friend, my dear friend, let's solve some of these global problems together.
2: All right, Salman El Ansari, what would be your uh, advice uh, in terms of how to fix the U.S.-Saudi relationship?
0: I would love to say something as glamorous as what uh, (laughs) Dr. Rob said, but uh, overall there is actually a saying, uh, make happy, those who are near and those who are far will come. So as I said earlier, I would love to see the US to be back to its natural stance and to be able to help itself and to become the model that it used to be. uh, So other countries and its allies will look up to it. That's number one. Number two is respect. Respect is key. Number three values when it comes to respecting the values of others, of yourself, you have to respect the values of others and you cannot uh, be in a position where you are having this kind of high moral stance because that, that actually goes against uh, the true nature of human rights because the moment you are claiming to have the one and only version of human rights, that actually goes against the idea of diversity, the idea of openness, the idea of openness to new ideas, etc. So I think uh, what we really need to fix the Saudi U.S. relationship and I think it is still a positive relationship it is more pragmaticism and less ideology.
2: All right. Thanks Salman and Brian Katulis you get the last uh, word on, on all this. What would your advice be? Uh,
1: have more programs like this and understand that you're never really going to fix quote unquote relationships that you're constantly working on it. and. It needs ongoing engagements and broadening uh, that relationship. When I see the history of, and often it's trotted out the images of FDR with the Saudi king at the time, uh, decades ago, Uh, we've been through a lot together. We'll be through a lot even more, but a lot of that history was predicated and narrowly isolated on a couple of issues like energy, uh, defense, and arms. What I'd love to see is uh, Saudi Arabia is just at the start of an amazing transformation. Uh, social and economic and other things, is that those points of connection between our society and theirs uh, grow stronger. And it, it it won't come from the government. It won't come from the Saudi system or the U.S. system at all. It'll only come from people who are actually of goodwill, who actually want to engage rather than demonized and finger point. And, and you know, it'll never be fully fixed because we don't always will always agree. And that's that's okay. Some of the best relationships I have are with those who actually I don't see eye to eye with, but I trust them. Uh, I admire them and respect them. So I think that's, that's how you go about
2: doing it. It's been a real pleasure to have all three of you on. I so appreciate it. Uh, We could go on for four. I need a four hour radio show though. So we can (laughs) dig deeper in all this with such great experts. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We really appreciate it. And for our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Um, You can always get the podcast and more information by visiting Arabnews.com. I'm Ray Hanania. We will talk to you next week in Detroit and Washington, D.C. and online. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, Ray. Thank you all.